If you would, open your Bibles to Romans 1, beginning in verse 16. Romans 1, 16, I'll read 16 and 17 as we continue our study of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. So as I've said in previous weeks, this is our uh, third or fourth week, depending on how you count, in this topic of the gospel. And the rationale is to support or build up or make possible the uh, pastoral goals or ideas I, I gave to us, I sought to give to you as the congregation at the beginning of the year. The first being unity. And the gospel must be our foundation for our unity. It can't be just that we happen to be in the same area or that we all happen to like the same type of preaching or music. The gospel must be the foundation of our unity. This is what Paul says to the Corinthian church. In any church mess you've been a part of or bad church experience in the past, it can't hold a candle to what was going on in the church in Corinth. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you of the gospel. It's first order of business for any type of unity that we would want. Reminding us of the gospel. No matter how long you've been a Christian, we need to be reminded of the gospel so that unity in the body of Christ is possible. Also, the second value is discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ and become more like Him? It means exactly this, that we grow in our understanding of and living a life worthy of the gospel. And in line with the gospel and inviting others into it. And also the, the main reason in connection with our study of the book of Hebrews is this. The author of Hebrews has gone on and on and on up till chapter 8 in our study. Talking about the glories and the greatness and the blessing of this new covenant. And Jesus our great high priest. So the question that he finally answers when we get to chapter 11 really who knows how long it'll take for us to get there, is faith. Faith or the gospel, belief in the gospel, is what brings you in to benefit from Christ's ministry to you as great high priest and to receive all the benefits of the new covenant. And so each of these messages, I've tried to begin the same way, explaining why, and then also revisiting the gospel. And what I want to do this morning is to read from Acts 13. Each time we'll look at one of the different summary passages that I've put on the handout. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have a handout, go ahead. It's Acts 13. This is one that has recently come to the surface for me as one of my favorite explanations of the gospel or summaries of the gospel. Acts 13, we, we read from Romans, Romans last week, from Romans 3. That one's probably one of the best and most clear in the, the function of righteousness and Christ's righteousness. But this one is just so great. Acts 13, beginning in verse 32. 
And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it was written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose, God in his own generation, purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep. It's Bible talk for died. And was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest What is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. Such a great and beautiful and historically rich explanation of the gospel. And so we come to this phrase. We looked last week at the phrase that Paul gives us, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Looked at that in length. Why would he say that? What are the reasons that one might be ashamed of the gospel? And then he answers the question why he is not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for or because it is the power of God for salvation. So why is Paul saying it? This It explains why he is not ashamed of the gospel. Do you remember from last week some of the reasons that a person might be ashamed of the gospel? The fact that it presupposes bad news? Really bad news? That it looks like foolishness to the world? That it's the most humbling message that you can ever hear? That it claims universality? That it is the only way? That it's demanding, it demands your whole life. It can't be a a, a side of Jesus. Jesus must be Lord of all your life. Centered on the cross. That horrific event on what we call Good Friday. And the idea of Jesus giving us His righteousness, that our righteousness is repulsive to God like filthy rags, and we must receive Christ's righteousness in order to be acceptable in God's sight. Like the, These are all reasons why the message itself might be somewhat offensive, if not very offensive to the world. It might cause us to be embarrassed a bit. So why, Paul, are you not ashamed of this message? Because it's the power of God for salvation. It is not one of the ways that God saves. If that were the case, if it was just one of the many ways that God can save people, then you would have the right to feel ashamed by it because it would be the most jarring way that he would save. It's just one of the weapons in his arsenal that he can use to save. 
Why, why send your son to the cross if there's another way? The point is that regardless of how difficult or abrasive it might seem, the marvel is that there is any way at all to be saved. And that one way to be saved, that power of God, all the power of God's saving initiative is concentrated in the gospel. That's why he's not ashamed. That's why he has unabashed pride, the way, the way that uh, Douglas Moo, one of the commentators on Romans, phrases this, that Paul has pride in the gospel. He boasts in the gospel. Do you feel pride in the gospel? We're proud of a lot of things as people. You can just look on Facebook and see that all of us are proud of a great number of things. Hopefully, husbands, you showed some of that this Valentine's Day. If you're just realizing that it was Valentine's Day, I'm sorry. Um, Show that you're proud of your wife. And it's not wrong to feel pride, a sense of unabashed happiness in what God has done and how God has blessed you. And Paul has unabashed pride in the gospel. He's happy in it. If you remember the story of David, when he finally brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and he takes off his outer garments, which was abrasive and shouldn't have happened. It was indecent for a king to take off his outer garments and to rejoice and dance before the Ark As it comes into Jerusalem, that feeling of joy, yes, here it is. That's a sense of what Paul feels for the gospel. And you can have that same pride. You can have that same unabashed rejoicing that might look foolish to other people. Will you pursue that with me this morning? He's also setting the foundation for the rest of his letter. This is why he's saying this. The rest of Romans is essentially answering the question, what is this great salvation that God works? What does the gospel do? How do the Father, Son, and Spirit work together to accomplish this power of the gospel? When and where did the gospel start? What is the gospel's end goal? Essentially, Paul is answering this in the majority of Romans. What is this salvation that God brings through the gospel? We'll try to summarize that next week. Next week is basically spending the whole week on that one word, salvation. But it's the power of God for salvation. So what does this mean? That, that it is, the gospel, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. A few things that he's not saying. He's not saying that the gospel is a, as it were, a spell or an incantation. Does he mean that if we get a person merely to say the words of the gospel, to like chant them, that they'll be saved? No. Does he mean that if we just chant the gospel, if we just speak the words of the gospel over people, that they'll be saved? No. It's not something magical or uh, 
vacuous. It's not, it's not something that's intangible and, and mystical. The power of God for salvation is not like an invisible force or aura that begins to move and do things when we faithfully communicate the gospel. Like from a, from a science fiction movie or, or fantasy film, right? Like when you start saying words that, that you see all this spiritual stuff moving around. It's nothing like that. It's not like radioactivity, right? When we say the right words, all of a sudden this energy starts swelling up. It's nothing like that. That's not the power of God for salvation in the gospel. First, the power of God for salvation is in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Though it is not an incantation or a spell or a mystical force of the words themselves, it does have to do with communication. God has chosen to work powerfully for salvation through the faithful and clear communication or speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to notice in this text is that there are three persons or entities. There is the preacher or the communicator. Paul says, and I am eager to preach to you the gospel also in Rome. So Paul is that entity. He's the person who's communicating the gospel. And then God is the second agent. The gospel is the power of God. So that's the third person or entity. And then there is the hearer. He says, to everyone who believes. He later says in Romans 10, if you want to turn there, Romans 10, 14 through 17. I want you to see the role of communication. The power of God for salvation is the preaching, the faithful preaching or teaching or communication of the gospel. Romans 10, 14 through 17. How will they then call on him in whom they have never heard? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And this is the verse I gave you last week. So core and central to everything you do when it comes to the gospel. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So is this just a job for preachers? Those who have an official title or pastors or what we would call professional Christians. Not at all. If you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, I want you to see this. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 8. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that 
you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord, you, you can circle that and write to the side, gospel. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. It's not just for the professional ministers. This is the reason you're still on planet Earth. One of the main reasons you're still here and not immediately taken to heaven after becoming a Christian is that the word of the Lord would sound forth from you. And that you're speaking the gospel is God's powerful working of salvation. It's evidence of being a Christian. Paul looks back at this church that he was not able to spend a whole lot of time in because of persecution. He had to flee Thessalonica. And he looks back and he hears the report and he says, This is how I know our labor among you wasn't in vain, that you're actually in Christ because the word of Christ, the word of the Lord, the gospel has sounded forth from you. Paul essentially says, Yes, look at what ha- what's happening. They're really in Christ. They're really believers because the gospel is going forth from them. There is no biblical space for you to exist to call yourself a Christian if your life is not about in some way proclaiming the gospel. And be careful, that's not just Christian truth. Okay? Moralism. Do's and don'ts. The gospel. This is what Jesus says in Mark 8. You don't have to turn there. We're going to be going to a lot of different places, so I don't want to wear you out. Mark 8, verse 30, verses 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If, any would, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, right? It's not, it's not just in some sense of being spiritual or religious, giving your life to that. For my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are you ashamed of the gospel? You need to repent. There's immediate application of this. God works through your speaking to save people. Your faithful and clear communication of the gospel is the means He has chosen to work His power to bring people to Himself. Can you, from memory and with passion, explain the gospel in the Bible's terms? If you can't, that's line item number one. 
And evangelism is so much less about strategies or clever tactics. It's rooted in this deep and joyful, unabashed pride in the gospel. We love it. We rejoice in it. We revisit it and live it and consume it every day. That it's our very life. And as you speak to others, whether you think they're in Christ or not, God works through your speaking, works through your passion. Our son, Ransom, is really into vacuums. He loves them. And we went on a family date for Valentine's because it would be unkind to ask another married couple to watch your kids so that you can go have a date on Valentine's. So we went on a family date. And the server comes up and starts taking our order, and he turns to her and says, Vacuum? Vacuum? Have you heard about these things? They're amazing. They clean stuff, and they move around, and they look really cool, and I'm kind of scared of them, but I'm interested in them. Have you seen a vacuum? So we get it, right? And obviously, your passion and zeal and excitement about the gospel as you mature and grow, it's going to look a little bit different than that. But this is something that exists even in a child. Are you unabashedly proud of the gospel? This gives us a basis for unity. When you catch this vision together with a group of people, it can truly create the unified community of brotherly affection we're commanded to have. And also, this gives us direction and clarity for what discipleship is. Maybe you have questions, intellectual roadblocks that prevent you from having this pride in the gospel, this joy, this zeal about this message. Seek someone out who can help you. Maybe you know someone who's, who's at that place. There are questions, there are blanks that need filling in. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know and understand the love of Christ. He bows his knees before the Father. He's urgently and zealously praying for them that they would understand this, that they would get it because it it captures you. It changes you from inside and it it drives you. The, The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ controls us. That we are moved in compassion and care and love for others. That we want people to see this and get it and know it. Not because it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's the only way you can be saved, so you got to understand this and, and buy into it, and then we'll get on to other things. But because we're excited about it. This is a great message. Sure, it comes with all of that other stuff, but that's what makes it so grand. Secondly, the power of God for salvation in the gospel is by the Spirit. It's not a system set up to function on its own. It's not as if we have the power of God for salvation been given to us like sticks of dynamite, as it were, to just throw on whomever and wherever we want, right? 
It's not like we've been given a superpower, like lightning struck us and we're, we glow now with some kind of superpower to go out and bring the power of God for salvation. God is not a clockmaker savior. What do I mean by that? He's not setting up a system of salvation in the world, a path, and then backing off and just whatever happens, happens. We'll just let it wind itself up or wind itself down. We'll see. The power of God for salvation, using our words as we faithfully and clearly present the gospel, is affected by the Holy Spirit himself. I want to give you some verses to underscore this. This is so central. From John 6, verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. From John 15, verses 26 and 27, But when the Helper comes, another name for the Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit empowers us and the Spirit works in the hearts of the hearers so that the power of God for salvation actually takes effect. And also, I do want you to turn to this one. It's so key. John 16, verses 7 through 11. John 16, 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Would you believe Jesus if he told you that? It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, so pay attention to what's happening here. Jesus is going to send the Spirit to us, and when he arrives, we, we know tons of other things that he's going to do for us, but he does something in this text with the world. He convicts. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You have a divine ally when you faithfully and clearly speak the testimony concerning Jesus Christ. What about Paul? All of these passages are from John. Does Paul tip his hand that this is what is happening as well? At the beginning, he says, who was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The way that the spirit first and foremost validates the message of the gospel is by raising Jesus from the dead. But also Romans 2 verses 25 through 29. 
for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. For if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This work that needs to happen in the hearts of those who hear is something that the Spirit accomplishes. This should be a great encouragement to you that you're not just speaking the words and they're ricocheting off of their hard hearts. The Spirit convicts. The Spirit circumcises the heart. The Spirit is active. He is our helper in our evangelism in as much as He is our helper in persevering. There are many other places we could go. The last one I'll give you is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. There's those words again. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he connects the fact that he is zealous to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean that that's the only phrase he said when he showed up in Corinth. He preached the whole counsel of God wherever he went. But the idea is that everything he said, whatever he taught, from whatever passage he was coming from, it all focused on and led people to Christ and him crucified, so that their salvation would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. So the power of God, the work of the Spirit, and all of that is encapsulated or given, contained in the faithful, clear Speaking of the gospel, we invite or summon, as it were, the power of the Spirit as we faithfully and clearly and exclusively communicate the gospel. However we can. That's where creativity and wisdom comes in to figure out how it is that we might get this message across. But you can't abandon it for something else. Because then you cut yourself off from the power of God. The Spirit's work is to glorify Christ. And if you abandon the gospel, if you're ashamed of it, and you try to minister to and reach people without it, then the Spirit is unwilling to bless. Because that does not glorify Christ. And the immediate application of this is obvious. We should pray. 
God's power in saving people is by the Spirit. As we speak, that we rely, we depend on the Spirit's work, even making us His witness and working in the hearts of our hearers so that they might respond. We need to pray fervently for the salvation of the lost. If a jury only had your prayer life to go off of, would they conclude that you cared about the salvation of others? We have to pray. We have prayer meetings. We have the time before the service. If we understand our inability to cause this miracle of new birth and we we can't change a person's mind by lofty arguments, we depend on the Spirit. We must zealously pray that God does this. can also apply this by remaining stubbornly, even violently committed to the gospel alone. If you leave it, if you make something else primary, if you have a different goal, if you hide the gospel, if you're ashamed of it, if you try to pretty it up, then you're cut off from the power of God for salvation. Reclaim your confidence in this message, believers. Not confidence in your intellect. Not confidence in having your resources and one-liners all lined up. Not in being a cool person or being relatable. In the power of God for salvation in the gospel. The only method of reaching the lost for salvation ever given in the New Testament is the gospel being proclaimed. That's it. Holy living and acts of mercy are the proof that we need to offer that our message is legit. But that comes behind and validates our message of the gospel. It is not first and foremost. Love this message. Embrace it. Feed on it. Live the gospel. And for God's sake and for Christ's sake, speak it. Proclaim it. Third, the power of God for salvation in the gospel is for individuals. The apostle says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's for individuals. Why am I saying that? Why is that important? We're going to look at this in detail in a few weeks, that it's to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. This is somewhat obvious, right? It's, it's, it's enacted or taken by individual people. We must make sure we understand that it is applied to person by person. The work of the gospel is not like cold-calling salesman techniques. It's not a numbers game with conversion ratio. Yes, God gives people special gifts for evangelism and outreach, and the net is often cast particularly wide 
But even in the ministry of Jesus, he's always preaching, he's always teaching. The, the gospel offer goes out to all. Anyone who will listen will, will get to hear it if they make themselves around Jesus in any capacity. And so we should model that. But his primary emphasis was 12 guys. And even among them, three. It's for individuals. We need to follow Jesus' example. Our main focus should be real and meaningful relationships with individual people with the gospel as the center. With non-believers too? Yes. The center of your relationship with the non-believer must be the gospel. Instead of leaving the 99 to find the one like Jesus does, we often leave the one and go after the 99. And by so doing, we have abandoned the way of Christ. It's a demonstration of power by the Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel to individuals as you speak the gospel to them persistently, patiently, kindly, and unabashedly. Our creativity and time and resources can't be spent on creating a use, rinse, wash, repeat method for bringing people into the kingdom. Rather, our prayers, our creativity, our time, our energies need to have faces to them. Real names of people. How to reach that one person that's probably on your mind right now. You want proof that this is how God works? Just think of your own salvation. What what are the most moving ideas or thoughts that we would attribute to our salvation? Jesus found me. Christ offered himself to me as my Savior. My sins were on the tree. He wooed me to himself. He communicated his love to me personally. It's not like salvation fumigation. We just show up and spray the whole area and hope that a few people come. It's names and faces and specific people and engaging with them as the one sheep. We are very truly ambassadors for Christ and we are to appeal to others to be reconciled to God even as the love of Christ controls us for those people. This has immediate application for discipleship. Who in this room are you doing that with? You might say, well, most of the people in this room are Christians, or majority are, or I guess all of them are in some sense. They're already hearing the gospel and the preaching. And those were the excuses I used when I lived on campus for three years at Southwestern. And dozens of them are now probably the hardest cases for anyone doing any kind of evangelism. They needed the gospel too. 
Yeah, they were hearing it three times a week in chapel. They were hearing it every class. Those who were taking 15 hours, that's five classes meeting two times a week. So they were hearing it, depending on what the class was, 10 to 15 times a week. We were talking about theology, but they needed the gospel They needed to be shown that their profession was not genuine in the first place and be called to repentance. Let that not happen in this room. Don't make my mistake. Would things have gone differently if I viewed them that way? I don't know. Only God knows. We can only look forward. These are the people that God has given to you to speak the gospel to. This also creates unity in the body. If you know that the person in front of you, that they trust the same Lord as you, there's that moment that C.S. Lewis talks about of, oh, you too? This, this, he's your Lord too? You, you delight in him too? That he wooed you to himself? That he, he found you and he communicated his love to you? That creates such a deep unity. Not just like there's this blanket out there that we all just kind of appropriate to ourselves. And yeah, I, I signed the right paperwork. I did the right steps. And I'm, I guess I'm in this thing called salvation. Jesus found you. Jesus found me. He brought us together into this family. You too? There is no greater, deeper, more meaningful foundation for relationships than that. Lastly, the power of God for salvation in the gospel works best through our joyful suffering. God's design is to work most powerfully through his servants, speaking the gospel, while they joyfully suffer and endure hardship. You might find that as odd to say right here. Where does that come from the text? Well, it's in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's the same word for bond servant or slave. He sees himself as a slave, as someone who's essentially sold himself into slavery to his master, Jesus Christ. And you can't separate the story of Paul from a story of a suffering servant. They're inseparable. You can see this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Not our fancy bells and whistles, not our strength, not our resources, not our wisdom, not our organization, not even our great understanding of theology. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your trials and tribulation. They're there for a reason that the power of Christ for salvation might rest on you. So here's an honest question. Is this just for Paul and Jesus and the other apostles? Is that something uniquely for them or is it for all of us? Paul says in Philippians 1, 29 through 30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's been granted, given to you. Here, here it is as a gift that you would suffer for Christ. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So is it just persecution on account of the name of Christ? Most of us Christians in the United States, we don't endure persecution really in the same way that they did, Christians in the first century. It certainly includes persecution that's directly connected to our profession of faith, but it's not just that. There are so many places you can see this. One that... uh, recently was brought to my attention is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. First Peter 4, 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing the things that the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, meaning those who have died in Christ. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, meaning that they died, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Christ is our leader and our example. We follow his footsteps, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, Showing that we do not love this life even to the point of death. 2 Timothy 3, 10-13. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions... 
and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. I'm giving you a lot because I know that the flesh hates this idea. The pride of man hates this idea. That God's power is made perfect in weakness. We don't want that. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power, there's that word again, belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So the contrast is meant to show the superior power and glory of this gospel as we, jars of clay, are meant to, by contrast, show the surpassing value of that treasure that's been given within us, carrying in our bodies even the death of Christ. What about Romans? Does Paul ever talk about this in Romans? Glad you asked. Romans 8, 22 through 25. If this is not a well-worn place in your Bible, Christian, it must become so. Romans 8, really the whole chapter, but verse 22 through 25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope... For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we are ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's immediate application for this, of course. You must see your suffering differently. You may not see it as persecution, but that is the enemy's purpose in it. Think of the story of Job. It wasn't because in, in the eyes of the robbers and the wind that knocked down the building that, that all of that came against him, but that was the enemy's purpose. It's because he loved God. And you may not see God's providential organization of all events to bring many sons to glory in your suffering, but that is what God is doing in it. And this may be offensive to hear, but what else are you going to do with your suffering and your trials 
You're going to respond with bitterness, apathy, or resignation. Things just happen. The world's fallen. Life is tough. No! Joy! These light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen. Only seeing your suffering this way can you at the same time call it evil and a result of sin in the world and the curse that the whole creation is groaning underneath. But at the same time, hope that God is working it to your good. Just like Joseph says to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good, that many would be saved. For unity, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That the whole law of Christ can be summarized in that, to bear one another's burdens. As God leads us and allows suffering and trials and tribulations to come into our lives so that his power may be perfected in our weakness, it's not like we're supposed to grin and bear it by ourselves. We're given each other so that we would bear one another's burdens. If one part suffers, if one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member is exalted or praised or honored, we are all honored. And for discipleship, are you and your brothers and sisters ready to endure this type of suffering? If your life has not yet crashed against the rocks of suffering and trials, it will. The curse is heavy. And all who would desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's a promise. Are you ready? Are the people sitting next to you in this room ready? This is the path of discipleship that we would encourage, bear one another's burdens, and point each other to the hope we can have in God so that we will be so that we will not buckle under the trial, but give glory to God, even as we see His hand at work preparing us for glory. And finally, rejoice in your sufferings. It's from Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, not in spite of. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let the power of God for salvation for others, rest on you as you rejoice in your sufferings, as you are glad to be a jar of clay, glad to have afflictions for the sake of His power being made perfect in you to bring many sons to glory. This is the way of Christ. It is the way of Golgotha. Deny yourself, 
take up your cross and follow him and rejoice in so doing, knowing that your reward in heaven is great, even as you follow him faithfully unto death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel for salvation. Pray that we would be stunned by your mercies, your grace, and your kindness, and that you have not left us alone, but given us your spirit to work these impossible things, to see many people come to you. Give us confidence in this message. Give us a full, unabashed pride in the gospel. For your name's sake and for the salvation of many, perhaps even in this room today, may today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, 